you take a minute and pray with me? Father, we believe that your promises are true. And according to the authority of the word of Scripture, just by speaking the name of Jesus, we're ushered right into your presence. So, Father, we speak the name and we come before you right into the very throne room. We could not approach you, we could not enter into your presence were it not for the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Because you saw fit to rescue us when we needed a rescuer. Because you interceded on our behalf, we can stand before you, made holy and made righteous in your sight. Father, as those individuals, we come before you right now asking that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would reveal truth to us as we study your word this morning. Give us a capacity to see things we wouldn't see on our own, but rather because of the working of the Holy Spirit. God, we ask you would take these truths that were written thousands of years ago and apply them to our life today. I thank you, Father, for those who brought finances this morning to entrust them to the church to expand the ministry of New Hope not just here in our region, Father, but around the world. I think, Father, of the orphans singing in Zambia, Africa this morning because of the faithfulness of this church. And I think of widows who are rejoicing because of the love of a biblical community coming around them. Father, all of us together join as one to say, we want to know more of you. So we ask that you would take this time that we've set aside and use it for that purpose, for your honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Anybody here ever made a claim that you couldn't keep? A promise that you couldn't stick to? Am I the only one, perhaps? I see hesitant hands. Ever said, I'm going to put away blank amount of dollars by such and such date, and you didn't do it. The date came and the date went. Ever said you're going to lose 10 pounds by such and such date? Ever said that to a friend or to a spouse? And they asked you, you said you were going to. Ever made a promise you couldn't keep? There's an individual in the 1970s and in the 1960s who was known for, let's say, his lack of humility. He was a noted, worldwide noted athlete. And as a world achiever in the boxing ring, Muhammad Ali was not known for his humility. As a matter of fact, he was a very confident individual, thought very highly of himself. Somewhere in the 1970s, at the peak of his career, somebody decided to start doing a documentary on Muhammad Ali. He was getting more and more puffed up about himself. Now, in order to film this documentary, he had to fly from Washington, D.C., where he was at, up to New York City. So Muhammad Ali gets on an airplane, the stewardess gets up before all the passengers on the plane and says to the passengers very specific directions, for flyover a body of water, here's where your life vest is at, if you need oxygen, the oxygen mask will come down, and you need to put your seatbelt on, by the way. Muhammad Ali didn't put a seatbelt on. So the stewardess walked over to him very gently and said, sir, um, you need to fasten your seatbelt. Ali said, Superman don't need a seatbelt. Stewardess said back to her, Superman don't need an airplane either. Put put on your (laughs) seatbelt. He grudgingly complied. 
She's right. He's not Superman. Neither are we. We make failed promises all the time. We make claims we can't stick to because we're failed human beings. Our God never makes a promise that he can't keep. He's never made a claim he can't live up to. Our God does not lie. So the promise that God has made to you is that things will get immeasurably better. Things will be unimaginably fantastic, but only before they get imaginably worse because Scripture says that as well. And you found it through our study of Revelation, there's a whole lot of bad things that are about to happen on planet Earth when the last days begin to unfold. Here we find this morning that there is a promise that Jesus is going to return as we study the second coming. So when God says Jesus is going to return, we have to say, that cannot be a lie because God cannot lie. Look with me up on the screen at Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 13. This is God making an oath. This is what this writer is writing about. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. You and I, when we walk into a courtroom, if the bailiff holds up a Bible and we have to make an oath, they ask us to do one thing, put our hand on the Bible, raise the right hand and say, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, God. God goes into a courtroom, he says, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, me. Okay, this is what this is saying. He makes an oath on himself. He could swear by no one greater. There is nothing greater than God, and he cannot lie. Now, you don't have to back up very far in time, a hundred years ago, to find that there was a generation just like us. The only difference believed that things were getting progressively better. People who lived at the turn of the century in the 1900s, because of the prosperity, because of the advances in medical achievement, because of the roaring stock market, because of the advancements of mechanics and engineering, people believed that man-made utopia was within reach. It didn't take long for World War I to break out, followed by the fall of the stock market, followed by the Great Depression, followed by waste across the United States because of famine and the Dust Bowls, followed by World War II, that the nations gathered together and said, we're going to do our best to make sure there's never this kind of calamity on planet Earth again. As a matter of fact, after World War II, because of the horrific slaughter of people on planet Earth, Nations, organized nations came together and built a building in New York City called the United Nations Building. As a matter of fact, they believed so firmly in the destiny of the world being a future utopia that they put a statue out inside of the nation's building claiming what they were working towards. Let me show you an image of that statue. If you go to New York City today, you'll see this statue at the base of the United Nations building of a man beating a sword into a plowshare. That comes from the Bible. As a matter of fact, let me read you this passage. 
comes from Isaiah 2.4 and Micah 4.3. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It's remarkable enough that that verse is actually inscribed into the cornerstone of the United Nations. Think about that for a minute. God's word inscribed in the United Nations building, but that they believed that was achievable. And people today still pray for world peace, wanting peace so badly that we will construct a statue and create a building and invite the nations of the world to gather to try and work out issues. There is only one solution for the world's problems, and that is the return of the king. Absolutely, the return of the king with absolute authority. Only under his rule will there be peace instead of war and righteousness instead of wickedness. If you're praying for world peace, you're praying for the return of the king. That's what you're praying for. So a question to frame this this morning as we're moving in. When someone mentions the second coming to you, what do you think of? What image pops in your mind when someone says, the second coming. See, that Jesus must return is a guaranteed truth of Scripture. If you believe that Jesus was born and that he died for your sins and was resurrected, you also have to believe in the second coming of Jesus. You can't pick and choose. So that the second coming is affirmed in Scripture is authenticated because our God does not lie. I cannot emphasize this enough. Look with me on the screen, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So that he's returning is a guaranteed truth of Scripture. I found a common misunderstanding in teaching theology over the years, among, mostly among church people, but among the world as well, people who don't name the name of Christ, that there's a common misunderstanding in associated the second coming with the rapture of the church. These are two distinct events, two different events entirely. The rapture of the church is when Jesus takes away those who name the name of Christ to be with him. The second coming is the return of the king, bringing the armies of heaven back with him in what we call the second coming. So this morning, we're going to look at the second coming intently. We're stepping into the climax of the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Revelation chapter 19 this morning. As well, you're going to see it up on the screen. And if you're new to New Hope, you'll find Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Those are there not only for your use so that you can also own a copy of God's Word. If you want to take that with you, it's our gift to you. That's why we have them there. You're free to take it with you this morning when you leave. All that remains at this point where we're stepping into the study of the book of Revelation, we understand that all the judgments have taken place, the trumpets, the seals, the bowl judgments, those are all behind us, the destruction of the world financial system behind us, the destruction of world false religion is behind us, and now we look at the second coming of the king. But before the celebration can take place, the warrior has to step on the scene. Now, as we read Revelation 19 this morning, I have to frame it this way and ask you this question. When you think of God, what do you think of? How do you see God? 
it frames everything in your life, how you see God. How you see Jesus determines your view of God. How you see Jesus determines your view of the world around you. How you see Jesus determines your view of your own personal life. You're going to see Jesus in a whole new way this morning, perhaps in a way that you've never considered before. In the 1990s, I went through a Bible study, and uh, the man who led it, his name was Dr. Henry Blackaby, was called Experiencing God. About halfway through the study, Dr. Blackaby asked a very poignant question after teaching us much theology about God. He made this specific statement. First, he asked the question, what do you believe about God? And then he made the statement, what you believe about God determines what you do next. How you view Jesus will determine how you will respond to the book of Revelation. Join me in Revelation 19 and verse 11. This is John writing, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadem. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now John makes a literal statement here. He uses the word harao. I saw this. I literally, physically, visibly saw this. Look with me on the screen at the word harao. To stare at. By implication, to discern clearly, physically, to perceive, see, or gaze. It has its root in the word optics, like when you go to your eye doctor to have your eyes examined. Literally, to see. So John's saying, I harao this, and it's amazing. He used the word behold, which means, wow. That's Mark's interpretation of it, but that's the word behold. It was shocking to him. What did he see? He saw heaven opened. This time, it wasn't so John could go in. It was so the king would come out. So look at it very closely. What did he see? A magnificent white stallion. He sees the stallion bow for the king, the conqueror, to mount it and ride out these massive gates of heaven. Scripture gives us a a description as we get further into Revelation 21, you'll see it. The description of heaven and its gates are amazing. But when the gates swing open and the warrior king rides out, he's riding a white horse. A white horse has very specific imagery in Scripture. So this king of kings mounts this white horse and he has a destination. Destination is planet Earth. So John says, wow, I can't believe what I'm seeing. This vision of this white horse with the conqueror riding on it, coming out of heaven, destination, planet Earth. Jesus spoke of this very same moment in time. Look with me up on the screen, Mark 14, 61. Now this is the point where Jesus is about to be crucified and the high priests are saying to him, do you really say that you're the son of God? This is Jesus' response. Mark 14, 61, and again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? 
And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus' statement about himself just before he's crucified. That statement is what got him crucified. At that point is when the chief priests ripped their robes and said, Blasphemy! Take him away! We need no further proof because he claimed that he was coming in the power of God. Look with me again, Matthew 24, 27. This is Jesus speaking and describing the last days. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall down from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. No wonder John is mesmerized. He is riveted to this image that he's seeing here. Now earlier we saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 4 receive the title deed to earth. Remember, he took the scroll from God's hands. Now he's no longer needing to open the scroll because all the judgments have taken place. John says, I see him now on a white horse. A white horse was always ridden by Roman conquerors. When the generals of Rome went out to conquer a nation and rode back into the streets of Rome, they dressed in white and they rode a white horse through the city streets so that everyone would know one thing, they have been victorious So this is the imagery that John is seeing here. And he says of him, he who sat is called faithful and true, always faithful to his promises, always true to his word. Everything he says he will do, he will do. Remember the dialogue that took place between Jesus and Pilate? Jesus is talking to the governor just before he's to be crucified, and Pilate says to him, so, You say you're a king. Jesus said, this is true. This is the reason that I've been born, to proclaim the truth. Pilate was so taken back by his answer, he said, what is truth? He didn't know what else to do with it. Jesus says, I am the truth. So this statement here contrasts all the lies of Satan and the Antichrist in the book of Revelation all the way through the end times with the one who's faithful and true. And John says next, in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Now that doesn't sound too much like the Jesus in the manger, does it? He's a warrior and he's a judge. So in faithfulness and truth and righteousness, he judges and wages war. Because he's faithful, he requires a holy action against sin. Because he does what he says, he must judge the wicked. So we see him arriving. Jesus came the first time as a savior. He comes the second time as a judge. And he doesn't come like other world conquerors. Think of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great sweeps across Europe, sweeps across Middle Asia for one reason, because of his ambition and his pride. I've noted reasons why conquerors come out over the world history. Look with me up on the screen. Most world conquerors don't come like Jesus. He doesn't come because he's not motivated by ambition and pride. His motives are righteousness, and he's fulfilling God's purpose and God's promise. This is very hard, church, to get our mind around. 
because Jesus came and established an age of grace. His death brought about forgiveness of sin. And during the church age, there's been grace and forgiveness, not judgment from God. But there's a point when his grace runs out. He will no longer be tolerant, and it will come to an end. And then he brings out judgment. John said also his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadem. You get a literal physical description of what he's seeing here. Now, my sons told me that during their teenage years, and my daughters referred to it, but mostly my sons, they said to me, Dad, you've got a look, and I wish you would stop giving me that look. And I said, what look? You know, like when you're really unhappy with us, it's, I can't stand it. Adam was so expressive. I remember him as a 17-year-old. Stop, I don't like that look. It was the piercing look of a father knowing what he had just done met with disapproval. Now, I didn't really realize I had a look, but that's what he called it. What John sees here, there's eyes flashing with fire, flames of judgment. We understand from what we studied earlier in Scripture that this is the piercing vision of Jesus. He sees into the deepest, darkest recesses of the human heart. He sees everything. Hebrews 4.13 speaks to this. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Nothing is hidden from him. And you notice he's wearing a ruler's crown. It says diadem. On his head were many diadem. When you are in heaven, someday in the future, you will receive a crown of righteousness, a victor's crown. It's called the Stephanos crown. This crown that Jesus wears is the diadema, and there's many of them. He says he's wearing many of them because it's the crown of royalty. Diadema is only worn by kings. So we see him wearing a diadema, and he's got a robe, and it's dipped in blood. It's not the blood of his own death on the cross. Don't misunderstand that. This is the death, this is the blood of judgment. The judgment against those who are not redeemed that will be slaughtered in the battle of Armageddon. This is a picture of those who have rejected Jesus, and Jesus' robe is splattered with their blood. The very graphic image. Do you notice something, church? It doesn't say that he's wearing a helmet. It doesn't say that he's carrying a shield. There's no defensive posture whatsoever. There's only conqueror moving forward. He's the one who comes in fury, and he's wearing a robe. He doesn't even need a bulletproof vest. There's no mag flashlight strapped to his hip. He's wearing a linen robe and he's carrying a sword, but there's no shield and there's no helmet. He's expecting to incur no harm whatsoever, not intimidated by men, no defensive mechanisms, and on his robe there's a name. And it says his name is the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, the revelation of God, the truth, the way, the life. It's the full expression of the mind of God. What does Scripture say in Hebrews 1? Look with me on the screen. Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. If you later today want to open up your Bibles, or maybe just do it now and flip over to Hebrews 1, 3, I would circle the word exact representation because you use this word all the time in your English language. Caricature. Caricature. It's where we get the word character from. 
And it literally means he is not an IBM reproduction. He's not a Xerox copy. No one went and took a picture of him and said, this is what God looks like. Scriptures are saying this is God. He is the exact representation of God. Brilliant in his glory. Verse 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Do you have a problem with that verse? Armies and heaven? I mean, the two don't really go together in your mind, do they? An army in heaven? Where does that come from? Look with me at the definition for armies so you understand what they're talking about. A body of troops, an army, soldier, man of war. The armies which are in heaven. That's a really hard one to get your mind around. Especially when you think that that army is you. The army that's being spoken of there are the believers riding on white horses behind Jesus. I remember in 1973 very clearly when Richard Nixon wiped away the draft here in the United States. I'm thinking, missed that one, not going to be drafted. Wasn't really thinking that as a 13-year-old they don't draft people. But I just realized that, hey, I missed the military draft. I'm not going to qualify for it when I turn 18. You don't get to miss the draft in this one. Everybody's going to be part of the army. And there's four divisions that I've identified of individuals who follow Jesus out of heaven for the second coming. Look with me up on the screen and you'll see those four divisions. First of all, it's the church age believers. It means you. You get to ride side by side with James and John and Paul, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. I don't know where they're going to be at in the crowd, but they profess the name of Jesus Christ. And if they were believers in Jesus Christ, you're going to be riding side by side with every individual of the church age as Jesus leaves heaven. Also, tribulation believers, those who came to Christ during the last seven years, during the tribulation. And the Old Testament saints, you get to ride next to Daniel and Joshua and Moses. That's what Scripture is describing here. And also, Jesus said, the angels are coming with him. Matthew 25, the angels come with Jesus at the second coming, to cover earth. All for one purpose, to accompany the king. Now, if you look very closely, you'll notice that your Bible doesn't say that the armies of heaven are armed. We have no weapons. We're dressed for battle. We look like we're going to battle, but we get no weapons, kind of like the French, okay? You got a picture in your mind there? (laughs) Some of you are catching on right now. Kind of like the French. We dress for battle. We look like we're going to war, but we're really not going to fight because Jesus carries out the battle. Can you imagine an army clothed in white? Look with me at this image on the screen. United States Navy in what? Military dress uniforms at attention. Do we think that that group of guys are going to war? No, they're being inspected by their commander. It's a dress review before departing the ship. If they were going to battle, they'd be putting on their battle fatigues. We don't associate white clothing with war, but yet the armies here in Scripture are wearing white, and we're wearing riding white horses according to Scripture, following him on white horses. What did I say earlier that white means? Victory. 
Jesus, the conqueror, riding the white horse in white clothing with a white army behind him, the victorious armies leaving heaven and following Jesus for the second coming. Do you like to ride horses? Because you're going to get your chance. White stallions, how cool. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When my sons were little, I never had to teach them to do battle with swords. Every stick that they saw was a sword. Walking through the woods, they'd pick it up and they'd begin stabbing at each other. You've seen boys do this. They beat them back and forth until they break somebody's sword. I didn't have to teach them to do it. It's in them. Big boys love to watch movies like Gladiator. Right, guys? Okay? We associate and identify with the battle scene of someone being victorious. We are image bearers of God. God, the warrior. Genesis said that we were made in his image in the likeness of God we were made. The warrior king is what you see coming out here. Men, we are image bearers of God Almighty. We are the warriors that he has set aside for a purpose. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. What does he do with his sword? He consumes the enemy. I'll give you a description of that in just a minute. Look with me on the screen, 2 Thessalonians 2. Speaking of the Antichrist, that the lawlessness, lawless one will be revealed from whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. It does not mean Jesus has bad breath. That's not what it's saying. The power of the word of God, the I am speaking. What did your Jesus do when he walked on planet earth? Stood in a ship with his disciples who were freaking out because of the storm and with a word, still the waters went calm. Confronted a man consumed with demons. Scripture says a legion for we are many. And Jesus said, be gone. And the legion was gone. So the power of the word of God speaking brings death to the nations. The sword coming from the mouth of Jesus is an image of the power of the word of God. Speaking the word. Think of the night Jesus was about to be arrested. The soldiers come to him in the garden. They walk up to him and say, Are you Jesus? His response, I am. And what do they do? They collapsed and fainted at the power of the word of God. What you're seeing here, striking down the nations, is the power of the great I Am. All those forces who gather for the battle of Armageddon, coming together in one place, none will escape because of the power of the word. So think of this imagery, church. He advances from the gates of heaven. John sees this magnificent stallion, armies dressed in white following him with destination earth. And as he approaches the battle of Armageddon, the earth begins to shake. Scripture says that the Mount of Olives will literally split in half at the arrival of Jesus. His approach will bring a mighty roar. Clouds surround him, flaming in fire. 
Scripture says there's no arrival of the king without the clouds that surround him. And he said himself, he will come in the glory of God. The glory of God is the flame. And all the earth will behold him. And notice what's on his robe. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church, this is not the Jesus Oprah talks about. This is a warrior king. Students, find a poster of the Jesus that looks like that and put that on your bedroom wall. That's an image you want to look at. This is a warrior who walks before and wipes out and consumes all who rebel against him. First, he conquered sin on the earth through his death on the cross. Now he conquers all those who rebel against him. Now, if I was going to take this next few verses that wrap this up and put a rating on it, I'd put an R rating on it. When you're watching videos, sometimes there's little warnings that come across for previews of videos that says, warning graphic images. This is about the most graphic image you're going to find in Scripture. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. John sees this massive angel and apparently the darkness that came with the fifth bowl on the earth has been lifted because now he can see the sun and standing in front of the sun, that's what that actually means, he's eclipsing the sun. He's so big, he's eclipsing the sun. John sees him standing in front of it and with a loud voice, come, assemble. He calls all the birds of the earth to this place where this battle is going to take place. A 200-mile-long battlefield from the northern part of Israel where the valley of Megiddo lays today, the plain that sweeps down all the way to Basra, the destruction will be horrific. There will have never been a slaughter like this slaughter that's going to take place on planet Earth. Zephaniah, a prophet who wrote before Jesus in the Old Testament, wrote about this moment. Look with me on the screen. Zephaniah 1.14. All the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. And all he has to do is speak a word. Scripture says he spoke the universe into existence. With the same word, he speaks the destruction of the battle of Armageddon. Those who bring in the battle is not a proper word because this is a holocaust. Verse 19 and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Let that image settle in for just a minute. The armies of the world see the same thing that we've just described. The earth shakes, the arrival of the king on clouds, and yet, they gather together to make war against him. How can they possibly imagine they can overcome one like this? Yet they gather for war. And look at what the warrior king does with those who oppose him. Verse 20 wraps it up. 
And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Before any battle whatsoever, it's over. In an instant, he seizes the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, I want you to see two words there, seized and thrown. The word seized, you're not going to see up on the screen, but it's the word piazzo. If you ever watch any of the 1930s gangster movies, you heard some of the gangsters say, if we get pinched, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. That's the word piazzo. Pinched means to literally be grabbed around the nape of the, nape of the neck, the back of the neck. It's what law enforcement officers did when they arrested someone. Piazzo means to seize someone and collar them and grab them back. And what does he do when he seizes them? He throws them alive into the lake of fire. Now this word I do want you to see, it's the word balo. Look with me on the screen at the definition for it. To throw, violent or intensely, to cast out. This is a word that was used when people took their garbage out of their house. To take the pot that was used for human waste in the morning and empty the human waste onto the dung pile. And they didn't do it gently. They threw it forcibly. Balo. Jesus is taking out the trash and he's literally throwing them into the lake of fire. They were seized and thrown. That's the imagery of those who reject Jesus Christ. So this same one who once spoke to the hollowing winds and calmed the sea, the same one who spoke to the legion of demons and chased them off, will speak again and the battle will be over. It will be completely done. Do you remember, church, reading, even if you didn't grow up in church, about the end of Jesus' time here on planet Earth? It's been captured in art all over the world. Jesus has died through crucifixion, been resurrected, and 40 days later, about 500 people are gathered around him. He's on the Mount of Olives, and he's giving a final commandment to his followers, telling us what to do as the church to carry on his work. And as he's speaking, he's lifted up to heaven into literally the clouds that surround him. Now the angels spoke literally to the men that were there and said to them, men, why do you stand here staring? Harao, why do you stand here gazing? This same one who's gone into heaven will come again the same way on clouds of glory. That's what scripture promises us. Now the Bible makes it very clear, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the beginning of the age of grace, redemption and forgiveness until the age of grace ends, the last days unfold, and it's the judgment. At that point, at the judgment of people, there is no more chance to say, wait, wait, I changed my mind. Because as you're going to learn in Revelation chapter 20, when we stand before the throne, I mean individuals who have not confessed the name of Christ, they will be judged 
and cast into hell if they've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hard truth of Scripture. So what you believe about God really does determine what you do next. If you've never personally come to the point where you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not going to find me as a pastor out in the parking lot ready to tackle you. And neither are any of the other greeters at the door. We're not waiting and saying, hey, you can't get in your car until you confess Christ. That's not the way we do things here at church, at New Hope anyways. And in fact, I don't know of any church that does that. But graciously, what we want you to understand is the truth of the word. There is a return of the king and you need to be in right relationship with him. I'm gonna ask you to pray with me this morning because Christ's coming is a reality. So here's what I'm going to ask of you. Those who name the name of Christ, pray along with me. For those who are not yet there, you haven't made a decision yet, you haven't come to the truth of the reality of this word, I'm going to pray for you that you would come to that point through the work of God's Holy Spirit that you would understand the truth of what you've been faced with this morning because what you believe about God determines what you do next. Let's pray. Father, we've stood on the authority of your word this morning, examining truths that have been written down through the ages and never have you lied I believe, and many in this room believe, firmly because we understand your word, that what you have said will happen, will happen. But yet, Father, you offer the opportunity in this age of grace during the church age for individuals to still repent and to turn from a life of sin and to claim the name of Christ. So God, I ask right now that your Holy Spirit would be at work that individuals who are not yet there would feel that gentle prodding, the graciousness of your nature calling people along. Father, I know there are many questions to be answered for individuals who haven't yet named the name of Christ, trying to figure it all out. But the simplicity is, God, that you said, anyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you resurrected him from the dead will be saved. So we stand on that promise. So Father, I ask that you would bring conviction to those individuals who are not there yet and and help them to resolve these issues. Cause them to seek someone out who can help them work through this. There is no greater need, Father, than to be in right relationship with you. Father, we lay this at your feet, asking that you will do what you would with it. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.